one point left over from this morning's discussion. I talked about a person having an awakening experience would not have any input through the senses. There are also states of jhana, where some people experiencing jhana will also not experience anything with the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. And there's also another state, which is called the state of non-perception, asanyi, power, which you totally blank out. There's not even any perception. In jhana, there still is a perception going on, the perception of breath or perception of light. There's a labeling process going on. There's also another state of concentration. It's actually wrong concentration where there's no perception at all. It's just kind of blanking out. Um, some people will mistake it for cessation. So just because you blank out doesn't mean you're awakened. <laughs> so, there has to be knowing along with the awakening. That's why it's called Bodhi, his awakening. If awakening, if the enlightenment experience were totally, you know, totally demolishing consciousness, no one would call it awakening. No one would call it, as the Buddha described himself, you know, free with unrestricted awareness. There's no restrictions on your awareness at all in that state. Okay. Let's go on to passage number four. At this rate, we're going to be done maybe Monday morning. I think. <laughs> but it's important we focus on the early passages, the later passages, and fall in line. A beginning point for ignorance, such that one might say, before this, ignorance did not exist. Then it came into play, cannot be discerned. This has been said. Nevertheless, it can be discerned that ignorance comes from this condition. And I tell you, ignorance has its nutriment. There are qualities that feed ignorance and keep it going. It is not without nutriment. Um, just to stop here briefly, when the Buddha introduced the topic of causality to young novices, he would use the process of feeding as his example. Um, there's a kind of a catechism for novices. The questions are, what is one, what is two, what is three, what is four, down to ten. And of the different questions, the most interesting one is, what is one? And the answer is, all beings subsist on food, on nutriment. You know, the, the primary example of causality is the process of feeding. So automatically the Buddha is saying, okay, causality is not necessarily a good thing. Interconnectedness is not necessarily something you want to get involved with because it's feeding. We feed off of each other emotionally, sometimes physically, but mostly emotionally and mentally. And that inner being is actually inner eating. <laughs> we have, we, we have, Thich Nhat and I haven't discussed this one yet. <laughs> I don't know if you'd be interested in hearing about me anyhow. Um, at any rate, what's the nutriment for ignorance? And the Buddha chases them down. And you see that here in the various forms of nutriment are, give explanation for a lot of the path right here. What keeps ignorance going for us? The five hindrances. This is why we practice concentration, to get rid of the five hindrances. What is the nutriment for the five hindrances? The three forms of misconduct. Again, this is why pre the precepts, this is why right action, right speech are a part of the path. Three forms of misconduct are physical, verbal and mental misconduct. I'll just go down the list very quickly. Physical misconduct is stealing, excuse me, killing, stealing, illicit sex. Three forms, of, four forms of verbal misconduct are lying, divisive speech, abusive speech, and idle chatter. And then three forms of mental misconduct are um, greed, ill will, and wrong views. 
So that right there, as food for ignorance, so that we have the path in order to counteract these various forms of food or nutriment for ignorance. And then there's the social side. Let's, let's chase it down. What's the nutriment for the three forms of misconduct? Lack of restraint of the senses. Restraint of the senses is something that's often misunderstood, being the idea that you don't look, don't see, hear, etc. What, when the Buddha describes restraint of the senses, he says, you look at the way you look at things. Why are you looking? Why are you listening? Are you looking for trouble? Are you looking for something to get greedy about? Are you looking for something to get angry about? If you are, learn to look in another way. Stop looking in that way. Learn to look at things in another way. Because otherwise, well, you've seen this experience in your own meditation. So suppose that you've been looking for something to get angry about. And we often do this. As, you know, we, we don't have a particular cause for our anger, but we want to be angry. And so we find something to get angry about. And you're looking around, you find causes to get angry about. And then you sit down and meditate. Meditate. And what happens in your meditation? It's all over the place because you've been looking for trouble and you've gathered it in. The same goes for lust. The same goes for greed. So, in order to get the mind to settle down, in order, and of course what happens when you start looking for things to get angry about, then you start acting on ways that are unskillful based on that anger. You've been basically feeding the anger and strengthening it. And this becomes a motive for misconduct and on up through the various hindrances. Okay, what's, what, why do we lack restraint of the senses? Because we don't have any mindfulness and alertness. It's important you understand the meaning of mindfulness. It means keeping something in mind. It doesn't mean bare awareness. It doesn't mean paying attention to the present moment. It means keeping something in mind. Alertness is the quality of paying attention precisely to what you're doing in the present moment. These are the two areas that we have to worry about. Mindfulness is important because, as we've pointed out many times this morning, what you bring to your sensory experience is important. So you've got to remember to bring the, the right things. Keep in mind that you want to approach the, your experience skillfully. It makes it a lot easier not to have an unskillful reaction. That's the, ro- the role that mindfulness plays. Alertness is when you're actually looking at what you're doing. What are you doing? What are the results of what you're doing? That's the role of alertness. Okay, what is the nutriment for lack of mindfulness and alertness? Inappropriate attention. And we'll get into inappropriate attention in a minute. Basically, it means looking at, deciding to look at the wrong things, paying attention to things that you shouldn't pay attention to and ignoring things that you should pay attention to. Um, in some of the passages, they describe this in terms of the questions you ask or the questions you bring to a particular experience. And we can get that into that a little bit later. Okay, the nutriment for inappropriate attention is lack of conviction. Lack of conviction comes from not hearing the true Dharma, and not hearing the true Dharma comes from associating with people who are not truly good, or people who lack integrity. So, there's a social element here, too. It depends on who you hang around with. Because the people you hang around with, you're going to pick up their views. And from picking up their views, if they have unskillful views, you tend to bring those unskillful views into your, into your experience. going to give you an example, but it's political, so I'll stop. <laughs> you know, if you listen to Rush Limbaugh every morning, after a while, Rush Limbaugh starts making sense. You know? <laughs> so, but if you start associating with people who th- you know, say that greed, anger, and delusion are good things, then it's going to follow that you're going to start 
looking for trouble in your life and behaving in ways that lead to more and more ignorance. And so this explains a lot of the path right here, is that many of the factors of the path, starting with learning to associate with the right people, finding good people, listening to the Dharma, developing mindfulness and alertness, developing conviction in the practice, these are things that help chip away at ignorance. This is how you overcome ignorance. So even then, even though ignorance comes at the beginning of the list, again, ignorance is not the prime mover. There's conditions that can get cut through ignorance. So let's look at um, the opposite of ignorance, which would would be seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Passage 5. Okay, this is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. Okay, that's the truth of stress. Notice the Buddha never says life is suffering. How many times have you heard the Buddha's first noble truth? Life is suffering. You hear it all the time. But the Buddha never says that. He says, I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of this stuff in life, that's for sure, but life in and of itself is not suffering. Because these are the different manifestations of suffering, and then the Buddha boils all forms of suffering down to what they call the five clinging aggregates. And you know, the aggregates are form, feeling, perception, fabrication, excuse me, and consciousness. And the clinging aggregates are when you bring any of those four forms of clinging that we discussed this morning sensuality clinging. View clinging, precept and practice clinging, and doctrines of the self clinging. You cling to the five aggregates in any of those five ways. That's going to be suffering. We could spend a whole day just on that one topic. But, and then the Buddha goes on to define the truth of the origination of stress, the craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion that delight, relishing now here and now there. In other words, craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. Okay, craving for sensuality, we've already discussed. That's, you like your sensual pleasures. You want to have more and more and more of those. And you like, excuse me, and your sensual desires as well. Craving for becoming is craving to be something. Like you may decide you're, you're tired of being a human being. Next time around, you want to be a bird. Okay, that's craving for becoming. You want to be a deva. That's craving for becoming. Craving for non-becoming is wanting to be annihilated, kind of like the Freudian death wish. You might decide that this life is miserable, it's horrible, I would rather die. That's craving for non-becoming. Now notice the Buddha is not saying that all desire is unskillful or all desire is bad. He lists three specific types of craving. Now these cover a lot, but they don't cover everything. Because if you look carefully at the, at the Noble Eightfold Path, and we don't have the full description here, but under right effort, part of right effort is generating desire to be skillful, generating the desire to drop unskillful behavior. So the Buddha is not you know, laying blame on all forms of desire. It's three specific kinds. Craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. Sometimes you will hear that the Buddha is saying, desire is not bad, it's just attachment to your desires that's bad. He never says that. I don't know how many times I've heard this, that if you can be with your desires but not really, not really want the goal that you want, then you're okay. I've never understood that. <laughs> how can you have to desire it and not want to have it fulfilled? You know? If you don't want your desire fulfilled, it's not really a desire. 
In other, in other places they say that when you're too, too obsessed with having your desire fulfilled, what kind of desire is that? Kind of a lukewarm, I'd, I'd be okay if I got my ice cream cone, but it'd be okay if I didn't get my ice cream cone. Kind of. I mean, you can live a lot of ways in life that way. The way I'd heard it was, if you didn't get it, you were okay with that. Yeah. That was desire. If you weren't okay with it, that's crossing right. over the line into craving. Okay. Well, the Buddha never says that. Because after all, you're supposed to want one awakening so much that if any unskillful habits come in your mind, you would put them out in the same way that if your hair were on fire, you'd put out, put out the fire. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you really want to get, you know, you really want to get this done. So the Buddha's not saying to be lukewarm about everything. He's saying being careful about what you desire. Your desire to be certain things, or desire for, if you desire your sensual cravings, or if you desire to be annihilated, okay, that's going to cause suffering. Now, the desire to be skillful, the desire to drop unskillful behavior, the desire to gain awakening, this doesn't come under the cause of suffering. Now, as people will point out, if you do have a goal like that, of course, there's going to be some suffering that comes from realizing that you have a goal and you're not there yet. But as the Buddha said, that kind of grief is much better than the grief of not having a goal at all. One. And two, he says the cure for grief over not getting the sight, sound, smells, taste, tactile sensations that you want is to develop grief over the fact that I'm not awakened yet. <laughs> There's gradations in grief. And, and the grief of having a goal is, is actually a step toward the goal. So, so what the Buddha is saying here, there are three specific kinds of craving that are going to cause suffering. This is, these are the ones you've got to watch out for. Okay, the noble truth of cessation of stress is the rem- remainderless fading and cessation Renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that craving. So a lot of the practice is learning to see through two things. One is to see that the objects you crave are not worthy of craving. That's one way of overcoming passion. The other is to look at the process of craving in and of itself, to see how uncomfortable it is. And to see how stressful it is in and of itself. And you decide, I I, I could do better not going with that craving. That, that particular type of stress then passes away. And then finally, the path to the end of stress, or the end of suffering, is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Many of those factors, as we pointed out just now, are listed under those factors for the, the, counteract, the counteract the nutriment for ignorance. Remember the three forms of misconduct, these are counteracted by right speech, right action, right livelihood. The, the hindrances are counteracted by right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And then right view and right resolve are what give you the impetus to do the path. Okay. Now each of these, as I said earlier this morning, each of these truths has a task. What this means, as I said also earlier, which is that the Four Noble Truths are not just four facts about existence, but they're four ways of analyzing your present experience and seeing, look what's important. What this comes down to is, and the Buddha is basically giving you a problem-solving approach to suffering. Since you want to solve the problem for suffering, these are the four things you've got to look for in your present experience. Where is the stress? Where is the craving that's causing the stress? What can I do to put an end to that? And so when you encounter stress, you recognize, okay, I've got a lot of stress in my mind here. The first thing you've got to do is comprehend it. Now, to comprehend it, you have to understand there are basically two kinds of stress. There's the stress of the three characteristics, which is just what's built into 
conditioned reality. And then there's the stress of the Four Noble Truths, the stress that's caused by craving. It's the second one you want to focus on. We can't do much about the fact that this building is conditioned. And that's the way buildings are. But the question is, are you suffering over this? Do you have any cravings associated with this building? Okay. And if you do, okay, that's why you're suffering. That's the kind of suffering we're working with. And John Sawat, my teacher, once, in fact, several times, liked to raise the question. He pointed to Mount Palomar, which is across the, the valley from where the monastery is. And he says, see the mountain over there? The question is, is it heavy? People say, well, why are you asking? He says, well, if you try to pick it up, yes. If you don't try to pick it up, it's not heavy. If it's heavy in and of itself, that's it's, it's no problem for you. The problem for you is when you try to pick it up. Okay, trying to pick it up, that's the, that's the symbol for the craving, the suffering that comes from craving. Okay, once you've comprehended the stress, you see what it comes from, then you abandon the cause. And then you develop the, the path factors that will help you to abandon the cause, and then you directly experience the ending of the cause. And these are the four duties around the Four Noble Truths. Now notice the Buddha is not saying <clears throat> that you have one approach that you always bring to the present moment. Sometimes you hear that you know, the Buddha's basic meditation instructions are let go. Whatever comes up, he says let go, let go. He doesn't say that. There's some things you let go of, some things you comprehend, some things you try to develop, some things you actually work at. I raised this point, I don't want to name names, but there was a group of people who came to see me a while back. We started talking about this. And I pointed out how you just can't let go of everything comes up. You actually have to develop the factors of concentration, develop the qualities of mindfulness. The person raised her hand and she says, now it sounds like what you're saying here is that you're trying to control the situation. Now I know you don't mean that. And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> there's, there's skillful control and there's unskillful control. And what the Buddha is trying to teach you here is skillful control. Looking for the things that really are worth working at, really are worth developing, like concentration, virtue, discernment. So it's not a one approach fits all sizes or one size fits all people, whatever. It's okay, what you try to analyze your present experience in terms of these four factors. And then once you identify that you've, that you've got a problem around one of the four, or that work needs to be done around one of the four, you know, apply the, the appropriate task. So is there any questions about those two passages on ignorance? And again, as I said this morning, ignorance is not an all-or-nothing thing. And at the moment of awakening, you finally, you finally get what the Buddha is talking about. But in the meantime, you're working on ignorance gradually as you're trying to develop a skill. Because it's the knowledge that comes from developing a skill that develops the mindfulness and insight that, that's really needed for this. Because what the Buddha wants you to do is to be sensitive to how you fabricate things. And the only way you're going to be sensitive about fabricating things is learn how to fabricate them really well. Develop a skill in how you approach everything from just dealing with other people to how you sit and meditate. If you take that attitude of developing a skill in how you approach that particular task, one, you look at your actions, two, you realize when you've made a mistake, and then three, you try to learn from it, try not to repeat the mistake. And in that process, you get more and more clear about what you're doing what the results are of what you're doing. And so in taking this attitude of approaching everything as a potential, as a skill you can work on, that develops the kind of insight and the kind of knowledge, the power of knowledge that's going to finally break through the awakening. Question?
I had a question about how you're, what you were talking about just before what you said about um, that sometimes it's valuable to develop a skill rather than just presented with something difficult and just say, let go of it. And I found that appealing in my own practice because I found I was sitting and just trying to be mindful of the thing or just say, were you aware of it? And it just didn't really resolve. And I've also noticed that in some approaches to psychology that it's actually better for the person rather than focusing on what's the problem to bring happiness into their lives and bring a sense of well-being before trying to delve into this more difficult thing or see if it just dissolves on its own. And how does that approach then of developing that self-esteem or go relax, actually, rather than try to sit there all the time, where does that fit into this framework that you've outlined or the Buddhist framework of the various... Uh, well, it definitely fits into the question of what to develop. <laughs> now, for instance, if you tell someone, go ahead and try to comprehend your suffering you just throw somebody at suffering, they're not going to have the tools they need in order to be able to look at it properly. Because what ha- usually happens, if, you know, if I told you all, you're going to sit here and meditate for three hours and you can't move. Okay, everybody would immediately start suffering even before the three hours. You know? <laughs> and then when the pain came up, all you could think about is, what can I do to get rid of the pain? Which is not what the task, and you're not trying to get rid of it, you're trying to comprehend it. Now, the only way you can comprehend it is if you don't feel threatened by it. And the only way not to feel threatened by it is to get a good, strong state of concentration going. So that you know that when the pain gets really bad, I can back off. And then you can learn how to observe how the mind reacts with the pain, what kind of labels it applies to the pain, which labels are making it worse, and then you drop those labels. Now you learn that not by trying to push the pain away or make it go away, but simply trying to say, I'm going to be here with the pain to watch it, to observe it. Now to be here with the pain, you've got to have a sense that you're not threatened. By the pain. That's what. That's why we work on the concentration. And this this applies all the way across the board. Um, and <coughs> to give you a little pitch for the, the, the new tricycle, has an article called "Hang On to Your Ego" uh-huh. by yours truly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just taking it out of, I know concentration is what we talk about in the formal right. uh, meditation terms, but is just the idea. <coughs> I don't know, go watch I Love Lucy reruns for a little bit to relax before you then try to I, I don't find Lucy relaxing. Anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or if just, you just take a walk or just something to just relax a little bit if you do find yourself so wrapped up in the suffering. Right. That, is, does, that have a, does that sort of advice have a part in the Buddhist framework? Oh, certainly, yes. You know, it's, just, it's basically... It's like treating your mind like a child. And sometimes you've got to feed the child. Sometimes you've got to spank the child. Sometimes you've got to put it to sleep. I mean, knowing how to read the child and what it needs. Um, the analogy the Buddha gives is being a good cook. You look at what your employer likes to eat. You, know, you fix a lot of salty food. The employer doesn't touch the salty food. Then the next day you change it so it's not so salty. And you provide what the person wants. Under this framework, would that be part of developing concentration? Right. That's what I was doing. But it comes under right effort, figuring out how to give rise to skillful qualities. And this this depends on your ingenuity. What what kind of child do you have in your mind? When do you listen to your inner child? When do you spank your inner child? (laughs) I have a psychologist friend who says the only people who have the entitled to talk about their inner child or pregnant women. 
But we do have this child aspect, a childish aspect. We're going to bring it into the meditation, so learn how to deal with it. You can't deny it. It sounds like we will get make progress on these readings. Okay, fabrications. Why do you call them fabrications? Because they fabricate fabricated things. Okay? Okay, the question is, what do they fabricate as a fabricated thing? Now look at this. For the sake of formness, they fabricate form as a fabricated thing. What this is basically saying is that your experience of form has an element of fabrication, i.e. an element of intention in it. Just how you experience your body has an element of intention in it. We think this is a direct, you know, sort of unmediated experience, but simply the fact that we are already choosing what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to, what feelings to accent, what feelings to put aside. There's an element of intention there already. So just the simple experience of form is a fabrication. And if you ever develop good, strong powers of concentration, you can play with this in the sense of the, the um, meditation on the elements. You can decide, okay, I'm going to make my body warm. Okay, find where the warmth is in your body. There are there'll be sensations of warmth at different parts of your body. Just focus on those as strongly as you can. And then think, okay, let that warmth spread, spread, spread throughout the body. And you find that you can actually accent feeling of feeling of warmth. If you don't like warmth too much, it gets too hot, then you can think, okay, water, and the water can cool you down. Or if you're feeling too lightheaded, think heavy, think earth. I've always found one of the best ways when you're in situations where you're not supposed to laugh, but you can't help it, just think that your stomach is filled with iron. You know? And it's really heavy and heavy, heavy and solid, solid. Okay, and then you find that you, you know, you, you can counteract the the impulse to giggle silly. So that's form. Same with feeling. Feeling for the sake of feeling, this they fabricated feeling as a fabricated thing. It's like you have a potential for a feeling, and then you decide which which of these potentials are you going to focus on, which ones are you going to ignore, and then you. You can aggravate a pain, or you can make the pain go, you know, make it less. Not totally, but there is an element of intention in your experience of that pain. The same with perceptions, other fabrications, and even consciousness. Your consciousness of certain things. There are lots of things that we could, that are in the range of our awareness that we don't pay attention to at all. And that, that level of consciousness falls away, gets attenuated. Like for a lot of this, this is one of the reasons why Focusing in the body is a difficult thing. We've learned how to be away from our bodies, how to ignore the body. Um, I've, I've, te- I've taught a number of people who were abused as children, and they had a great difficulty in focusing on the body because they had, ten- they had learned how to block the body out of their consciousness. And so being willing to open up to that again, takes it's kind of an emotional issue as well. It's not just a, a purely awareness kind of issue, but there's a lot of emotion involved in that too. So what the Buddha is saying here is that even our experience, just of the aggregates, just plain old aggregates, before we even cling to them, there's an element of intention already involved. And what this means, of course, then, is that okay, we can change our intentions. That'll have a radical impact on our experience. We're not presented with just raw materials, whether we like them or not. We can take the raw materials and we can fashion them. And a lot of the meditation lies in learning how to be a good cook. Whether it's a Vietnamese chef who one time said, give me a bottle of good fish sauce and I can make good food out of anything else you give me. 
Okay, that's a sign of a good chef, you know, that you can not only make good food out of anything, but you can use fish sauce to do it, you know. <laughs> I came back from Thailand, and back in those days, when I first came back from Thailand, this is 1976, Thai restaurants were not in the country. So I had learned how to cook in Thailand. And one of the first things I did, I visited my brother and sister-in-law, and I fixed them a Thai beef salad. And my brother was enjoying it. My brother was a Vietnam vet. And for him, one of the things he hated most about Vietnam was fish sauce. <laughs> and halfway through the meal, he turned to me and said, you haven't made me like fish sauce, have you? <laughs> I said, yes, I have. <laughs> so so this, is, this is a lot of what we're doing as meditators, is learning how to be better cooks of our experience. And so what are the three kinds of fabrication? There's bodily fabrication, verbal, and mental. This is brought up in passage number seven. This, is, by the way, is from a dialogue between Wisaka, who is a layman, apparently who's a non-returner, and his former wife, Sister Damadina, who was an arahant. Okay, she explains sankha, our fabrication here. In and out breathing is bodily, bound up with the body, therefore it is called a bodily fabrication. Having directed one's thought and evaluated the matter, one breaks into speech. Therefore, directed thought excuse me, and evaluation are called verbal fabrications. And finally, perception and feeling are mental bound up with the mind. Therefore, perception and feeling are called mental fabrications. Now, what I would like to do for the next several passages here is to point out different practices that relate to this. As I said earlier, when you, try, when you bring knowledge or bring awareness in terms of the Four Noble Truths to any of the factors of dependent core arising, that can have an effect of cutting through the suffering that those factors normally cause. This is one of the reasons why, given that the breath is bodily fabrication, this is why breath is one of the prime meditation objects. You're bringing your attention precisely to one of the things that causes suffering if you do it without mindfulness, without alertness. So you bring your mindfulness and alertness to it. So here's the, the classic description of breath meditation. <clears throat> 